Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalist. Matt Pagel here once again, flying this ship solo as we step into another month, as we step into June. And, and this uh, this is one of uh, Chumma's months as we get into history lessons. Um, obviously, the idea behind this one is to get back to some of the, um, as we call it, the Protean Man series, where it's um, kind of bigger ideas where we're going to we're gonna tackle and try to, like, really... Um, really hammered down on and, and get into some fine details about it. it. When we were originally doing a lot of the Protean Man stuff, those episodes got quite long, um, just because there's a lot of stuff to cover when you're talking about, uh, you know, the future of humanity and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, what, what, uh, you know, what might prompt the next uh, world war and, and what does the world look like after that? Um, <clears throat> when you start asking those kind of questions, obviously there's a lot of detail to go into. So we're kind of, this is, so history lesson is definitely kind of a, uh, continuation or maybe the spiritual successor of that of those uh <clears throat> of the, that particular series from uh, early on in the days of the occasionalists um but this time history lesson i think uh, you know like I, I think um i can't i cannot speak for chema but i think for me since i just came off of watching a bunch of war movies and watching a bunch of uh you know battle scene footage and kind of immersing myself into that I just felt like I needed something lighter to um, to, to kind of step into um, in terms of in terms of getting into the in terms of getting into the some of the fine details. Like I just didn't want to do something that was like that was going to bog me down and into sort of like the worst of humanity, I guess, because uh, I just spent a whole month there uh, covering all the battlefield cinema stuff, which was definitely a lot of fun. But when you do begin covering a whole when you, when you begin covering uh, war stuff, especially, um, you know, stuff that is, you know, movies and things that are based on real world events, the, the weight of it does begin to like, like it hits you like, you know, just 70, 80 years ago, um, exactly the, the turmoil that uh, the world was in, or, you know, a hundred years ago, the turmoil that the world was in. So it does, it definitely hits you a little bit differently when you're dealing with like real life stuff. So I, I was kind of, so for this for the for this first episode of uh, of history lessons, um, I guess it's just history lesson singular since we're I'm only doing one thing at a time here. I did want to do something a little bit, a little bit more fun, um, but that still had a nice and long history for us to kind of track. And so for the inaugural history lesson episode, uh, I am I am putting my best foot forward, and I'm going to go ahead and talk about drum roll, please. That's a terrible drum roll. I'm going to talk about sneakers. That's right, baby. We're talking about the athletic shoe, the sneaker, tennis shoes, running shoes, whatever you want to call them, of all the various names they've gotten over the years. But we are going to talk about the development of the sneaker and its impact in both, obviously, both obviously sport, but also in society at large. And um, you know, this two, it's going to this is going to be a two part episode, as I as I mentioned. Um, well, I guess there's going to be multiple episodes this month, but this particular one about the sneaker is going to be a two-part episode. Because I think it's kind of important to divide this into, because there's two very distinct periods of footwear. Um, and it really like, it, well, I'll, I'll get into the details here in a minute, but it really kind of stretches, like the ancient footwear kind of like really takes a long time um, for us to sort of develop in advance out, out of that. And then once we get into more modern footwear, the progression and evolution in the technology is obviously much, much better, and they evolve much more quickly. Um, so I, I think this will be a fun one, um, and we're believe me, we're gonna I'm gonna take this 
from a very, very long, I'm going to take this from a very, very long time ago, uh, all the way up to our more recent sneakerhead culture um, in, uh, you know, throughout the world. So this is going to cover, I guess this is, this might be our longest ranging episode because it's literally, literally going to start from about 50,000 years, 50,000 years ago. And uh, we're going to wrap up in the second episode with the modern, with the modern sneaker, sneakerhead culture and, um, the way the you know the the, the niche that the, that sneakers have kind of carved out in in our in pop culture and our society, so that's what we're going to be covering the sneaker. It's going to be a very very fun one. Uh, so to that, let's let's hit you with a quick, a real brief, easy lightning round question. You are getting your you're getting your best outfit on. You're looking fly. You're looking good. Um, what uh, if you want to get in your whole whole um, if you want to get into your whole outfit, go for it. Think about it. But what is when you're when you're putting on those shoes, what pair what pair of shoes are you putting on to top off that outfit? What who are you wearing to top off that outfit? Let me know. All right, like I said, the the history of shoes goes back a very 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 long time, and I think it's important for this um, to kind of give you the complete picture of just how how long it took to develop shoes. We do have to kind of start back there, um, and don't worry, we're we're not going to spend that long going into the details of of uh, how ancient people, you know, weave their shoes together or whatever. But um, but I think, it, again, I think it is important to kind of get the full scope here. So we're going to do this first segment here is what I'm calling A Brief History of Shoes. And I promise to be brief, but there is some pretty interesting stuff in here, as you will see. So we know that people begin wearing shoes with substantial structure and actual thick soles around 50,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago, somewhere in that window. Um, and it's interesting because we don't have any, we don't have anything recovered from this point in time. But but uh, because of all the work that uh, paleontologists, I'm assuming it's paleontologists, I think they study um, ancient dead things, um, including people. Um, because of the, the work that paleontologists have done over the years, um, they can tell how the human foot began to change shape. Um, you know, the... the the spread of the foot, the way the toes laid, um, all kinds of stuff in the in the human foot began to change about forty to fifty thousand years ago, which is indicative of that being the point in time where, you know, more so than just slapping, um, you know, maybe like stitched pelt or something around our, our feet for warmth, which would obviously be more like socks, um, ancient socks at that point in time. It was about this time where um, shoes with actual structure began to take place. Um, but again, they're not really, they truly are not what we th- would think about as being shoes. Essentially, um, the bottom part would have been, um, just a thicker, you know, woven pelt with some other materials and then like an upper, an upper portion that covered the foot that you could, that they would, you would kind of slide into. Um, but it's really not until much later than that, that we have evidence of a real true shoe. And appropriately enough for this episode, the first real true shoe is found in um, is found during uh, an expedition in 1938 in. And if you if you guess where I'm going with where they're going to find the re- the first real true shoe, then uh, but you know points to you. But they find the in 1938 they find the first true shoe on an on a expedition to Fort Rock Cave, Oregon. Of course, all things are going to come back to Oregon here. I think in this in this episode. Um, the Fort Rock Cave shoes, uh, date back to approximately nine to 10,000 years ago. Um, these were, uh, calling them shoes, I suppose, isn't, I mean, it's 
accurate, but these were definitely sandals is really what we're thinking about here. Um, a closed toe front, and they were woven out of multiple materials. Um, they had like a, a defined sole on them. They had defined openings, and they were just sort of like, they are made the way that you're thinking of like your your slides now. Um, it really is like the closest like comparison. Um, you could just slide your feet into them and, and they, and that's how they worked. Um, they're pretty smallish. Um, they were probably even by standards of nine, 10,000 years ago, they're pretty smallish. So they're probably, um, so they're probably a woman's sandal or a child sandal, which just goes to show you that even nine, 10,000 years ago, kids were just randomly losing their damn shoes places. Um, so those are the first evidence. Uh, that's the first evidence of like a, what you would be able to recognize as being a shoe and not just like a, a piece of like cloth that had an opening in it, essentially what was, which were, uh, you know, shoes prior to this point in time. Um, and it's, you know, there's multiple in this like dig in this expedition. I can't, I don't remember the guy's name who was like the head of this um, archeological dig. Um, but you know, they found multiple pairs of shoes, um, over it wasn't just one pair it's multiple pairs of shoes from that time period and and also other shoes from later time periods um you know from a few thousand years after that or i guess more recently to us um and really the development was kind of the same you know they're basically most people um you know at this point in time were wearing essentially what amounts to sandals um that were um you know but they were like a blend they were like a blend of materials which is also pretty interesting that, you know, even 10,000 years ago, and, and really probably even before that, this is, again, just the the first evidence that we found of uh, of a more sophisticated shoe, that even way back when people realized that um, different materials gave different strengths and a different, um, you know, different qualities, you know, some, you know, maybe one, one material was able to stretch a little bit more, and the other material gave it a little bit more structure. So pretty interesting that, um, you know, even... This long ago, uh, early man was um, was blending materials to get the benefits, to get multiple benefits out of them. All right, so let's move forward uh, a few thousand years in time and also train our eye uh, on the Mediterranean as we go look at Egypt and North Africa, approximately 4,000 BC. So we've at this point evolved from sandals. Um, we're going to go ahead and we're going to just start rocking flip flops now in uh, in Egypt and North Africa. Um, really, truly very much like the flip-flops that people wear now. Um, split toe with the, uh, you know, the strap going between, although I think, I think their flip-flops would have gone between like their middle toes in generally speaking, but, um, uh, a between the toe split where the, um, straps were anchored and then obviously it attached to your foot like that would have been, um, generally speaking like a wood sole with, um, other materials, you know, <clears throat> cotton or leather or something, uh, on the inside to like give your foot some cushion, but um, really and truly, Egypt can lay claim to pyramids and flip flops um, as as uh, as as, as uh, their their hallmarks. And obviously, they have a lot, quite a bit more than that. Um, but uh, this is where you're going to get a an advancement on the sandal, and it guess kind of makes sense in a, in a place with a very arid climate that's very hot. You would wouldn't be necessarily wearing uh, heavy leather shoes at this point in time. Um, so, so Egypt has our, has our flip-flops and it, this is very, very interesting. I, I'm a person who's, uh, always been intrigued by ancient Egypt and the advancements and the, how truly, how truly far ahead of the ancient world, um, Egypt was in terms of their medicine, obviously in terms of their, um, 
you know, their ability to construct these incredible, um, you know, these incredible uh, monuments, um, like grave, I mean, essentially elaborate headstones, really what the pyramids are. Um, just to put it in perspective, the, um, the Great Pyramid of Giza was the tallest building on earth until, until the Eiffel Tower was built. That's how long that building was, how long that structure was the tallest building and that was built, you know, four or five thousand years ago, or possibly longer. I can't remember how long ago it was, but you know, it it, it had its reign as the tallest building in the world for literally almost five thousand years. So that's how far ahead Egypt was. But interestingly enough, like I said, the medicine was also another big thing. You know, astronomy too. We we know that, but medicine was also a huge, a huge strong point for their, um, you know, for their doctors, scientists. Um, I don't know what they really would have been called back then, uh, shaman, you know, whatever. Um, so much so that they, um, we have our first sort of, we have our first advanced prosthetic. It actually comes out of Egypt. It's called the Cairo toe. And I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning this because it is a foot prosthetic. It is a prosthetic for, um, it was a woman's prosthetic for a big toe. And this surfaces around 3000 BC. Um, it's It was made out of wood and it like it, um, it connected to sort of, um, if you imagine like the upper part of like a sandal, um, there's just like essentially just like a leather patch that would have like connected to the toe to, uh, you know, the flip flop or some other type of shoe. And it, you you could have like essentially strapped them together. So the um, so the prosthetic toe would have slotted in and looked kind of, I mean, obviously not like a normal toe, but because if you're not paying close attention, you wouldn't even have noticed um, but it was made out of wood. It was refitted several times. Um, they know by the way that um, it was carved and restructured, reset. And actually, if you go look up the Cairo toe, you can see the detail on it. Um, it I'm going to go ahead and make a wild guess that that's what that woman's other big toe looked like. Um, that they just, it, it, I mean, it's carved with a nail in it. Um, it's carved with uh, knuckle markings in it. I mean, it looks like a real toe, um, obviously, other than the fact that it's made out of wood. But it was refitted several times. Um, it, you know, it would have been uh, certainly something that someone from the upper class, um, you know, or you know, royalty, or you know, part of the, you know, whatever, someone important. It, it was a woman's toe, and it was someone important, or maybe possibly the wife of someone important. Um, but very interesting that you know, even back then, I, I think it's you know, it's interesting that they um, one that they had the prosthetic. Um, I'm going to go ahead and assume that that wasn't a wild, that wasn't like a wildly new idea necessarily, but it is interesting that they can see how the toe was recarved and refitted, and how the um, the leather, the leather, uh, I don't know what we would call it for it, like the housing, I guess, or the attachment to it was also like readjusted. They could tell it was readjusted multiple times. You know, giving the idea that like, and that's the thing that happens with modern prosthetics. You know, if someone loses um, an arm or a leg. It has to be refitted. You know, it's not like you just get one off of a factory line, they hand it to you, and that's it. Like, it has to be fitted for that person. It has to be fitted to make them comfortable. It has to be fitted to, you know, you know, if it's if a person, you know, if it's it could fit perfectly, but if it's causing them some kind of discomfort, they have to readjust and readjust. So when someone gets a prosthetic, it's really a very long process of making sure that it is exactly right um and obviously the the uh, egyptian um medicine men you know doctors whatever you want to call them uh knew this uh thousands of years ago they knew exactly that this 
even on something even on something like a prosthetic toe, which would have been helped, you know, you underestimate how important your toes are. They really help you balance. Um, you know, knowing that this, especially especially the big toe, um, which takes a lot of that pressure when you're balancing. Um, thousands of year ago, years ago, they even knew that like we have to, you know, you know, probably probably in their case, it's probably more year to year or a couple years at a time um, that they have to readjust this year to year. Otherwise, the prosthetic will become you know painful or or useless uh, to the person wearing it. So just found that very a little interesting piece of uh, of footwear history there in uh, in Egypt, the Cairo toe. Go look it up. It's really interesting. All right. Now we are going to move ahead uh, a couple thousand years more. And we're going to go ahead and go to Rome. Of course, we're going to go to Rome, ancient Rome. Um, all roads lead to Rome. That's a saying for a reason. Um, but we are going to go to Rome. And uh, this isn't as an exact time period necessarily. But I would I would just go ahead and think of this as, um, you know, the what do, you, what do we think of like the more classic Roman time period from, you know, probably 300 BC to let's call it 200 AD. So like that that time period um you know maybe obviously you can stretch it a little bit farther back but um more of the classic roman time period um this is what we're talking about here um let's just call you know we could even you could even call it like post um post rome conquering greece um the battle of corinth is really this time period when uh rome adopts a lot of a lot of cultural things from greece but one of the things that they didn't um, take from Greece after um, after their conquest was the idea of just going barefoot. The the Greeks for a long time, I, I mean, really in you know, well through their Roman occupation, um, the the Greeks didn't usually wear shoes. Um, they just didn't see it as necessary. Whereas the Romans, I guess you could say the Romans were the ones who created our very first sneakerhead culture because the Romans were very much. It wasn't just something, you know, it wasn't just footwear for like, you know, jobs or or a necessity um, in terms of like, you know, just keeping your feet dry or whatever, like or, you know, putting putting shoes on soldiers or something like that. The Romans were the first to really see footwear as a status symbol, you know, of your wealth, of your place in society. And they really thought of it as being a necessary part of being a civilized person or someone who participates in in what is quote unquote civilized Rome, um, that you had to have shoes to be, to be a full Roman in other words. So, you know, you could, I don't think that was like indirect. I don't think that was like a, a direct response to sort of Greece's, um, you know, sort of laissez faire attitude about putting shoes on necessarily, but uh, you could think about all the, think about all the civilizations and tribes and things that Rome, um, conquered and, and pushed their way through throughout the centuries probably footwear wasn't necessarily a big part of those of their cultures and um, i'm not saying that they didn't wear boots and shoes and things like that because we obviously we know that they did but in terms of sort of making it um a necessary piece of of um a necessary piece of clothing it was probably a little bit more optional for a lot of for a lot of other cultures and um so you know over the years, it, it became a very Roman symbol that you, you know, if you want to be a part of polite Roman society, you better put some goddamn shoes on. So, uh, you know, this this really trickles down. Like I said, I, I, I you could call this our first sneakerhead sort of uh, sort of culture. And 
it begins with the Roman legions. The style and design of his soldier's boot signaled their rank. And, and beyond their rank, it also signaled uh, you know, their, their battle prowess. So, you know, if, uh, if, you, if you do watch a really correct time period, um, you know, Roman, uh, Roman war movie, you'll notice that the, that the officers, that your generals and things wore very high boots, whereas your regular legionary maybe wore something that would have been more like, quite frankly, like a, like a, mid, a mid-top type of shoe. Whereas the, the generals, um, you know, think about it this way, think more like of wrestling boots, like how high those were. And they would have had uh, intricate designs on them, colors on them, uh, something to something to signal, you know, their rank. Obviously, if you know if they were a general or a centurion or something like that, there would have been some kind of design in it. Uh, I'll assume. I don't know this for sure. I'll assume probably there would have been some kind of um, insignia uh, for their, you know, their their battle standard or their banners or something would have also been on their shoe. Certainly, different colors. Different colors, especially um, you know colors like red and purple and things like that, would have, that would have been expensive. Um, would have been on a, uh, a really well thought of soldier's boots. <clears throat> so, so the, the Roman soldiers really sort of, you know, that's it, you know in in ancient times, you know who you wearing or why you wearing that would have been sort of um, you know it would, it would have been for the Roman response would have been like oh it's because I you know killed a bunch of Germanic tribesmen. Uh, up, uh, you know, up in our northern front, or you know, or whatever. So uh, I got these boots for that. Um, so the the Roman soldiers and uh, Roman general had our first sneakerhead, so first sneakerhead culture, and more importantly, um, as far as and this is as far as I could tell in my research, and which uh, probably not as exhaustive as, as some other people investigating this kind of stuff, um, you know, uh, ancient clothing and things. But as far as I could tell. The Romans were also the first to make chiral shoes, or shoes that had chirality. And this is a chemistry term um, for designating things, the left and the right of something being different. Um, I can, there's a much more exhaustive chemistry definition for chirality. But like, the, think about it this way. So the shoes were designed for distinctly for the left and right foot. Romans were the first ones to begin making shoes and boots that were left-footed and right-footed. And if so, I mean, that should be obvious. But if you're thinking about chirality, take your hands uh, and I'm doing this. um, I'm doing this uh, on, uh, you know, off camera because it's a podcast, which is I always love saying doing visual things is always a great, uh, great little bit for a podcast. But take your take your hands, lay them both palm up um, and now, you know, kind of cross them over as if they were kind of sitting evenly and do your hands line up evenly. They do not. Looks like your thumbs are uh, are sticking out on either side. Um, the fingers don't line up e- evenly either because they're not, you know, your ring finger and your index finger and, and you know your pointer finger, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're they're not all set up in the same way. Uh, that's chirality. Even though things are mirrored, when they're facing the same direction, they are not the same. So Romans recognize that that your even though your your feet look the same. Your left foot and your right foot are not the same, so the shoes cannot be the same either. So it really is the Romans um, that that introduce this concept of chirality um, to their shoes, to their footwear, um, which I'm going to go ahead and make a guess made them since since you did have to you know since you were kind of expected to wear shoes a lot. I'm imagining that Roman shoes were probably at that point in time the most comfortable shoes on the planet 
because they were kind of taking into consideration the fact that your feet are different. And I'll just make another guess here. Probably if you were a very important wealthy Roman or, you know, important military leader, that probably your shoes were significantly more customized too to your feet. So, um, you know, leave it, to, leave it to the Romans to really standardize something and figure out the best way to, to go about making uh, their footwear making their footwear functional but also um, as uh, you know functional but also a status symbol in their society. So let's jump a little bit farther ahead now into becoming a more recognizable time period for shoes. We're going to jump into the 15th and 16th century and very specifically we're going to talk about some high heels. Now uh, back in this point in time, uh, men and women both wore high heels. Um, generally speaking, it was upper class men and women that wore high heels. Um, the heels first developed in Europe, and it was mostly to keep the wearer, um, you know, the the wealthy wearer of these of these heels, keep their foot up off the ground of like the dirt and, and grime that would have been on uh, you know on, on street level, on a ground level at this point in time. That was really their function. And as as uh, society developed in Europe at this point in time, the the idea that like the idea that like you know you depending on your wealth would sort of determine just exactly how high of a high heel you could wear. Um, and think of these. And by the way, think of these. Don't think of these as like stilettos. Think of these more like as big old clogs. Is really like these t- type of high heels. But um, principles is, is just is exactly the same. But anyway. Um, the the high heels were you know they go from sort of I, I guess I, I don't even call it practicality because they're really not practical but they do the the idea of them like okay well they're you're going to be elevated so your feet don't get dirty okay that makes sense but then that becomes that in and of itself becomes the status symbol how high off the ground are your shoes are your feet and that becomes the thing that really sort of takes off and becomes absolutely bizarre at this point in time in Europe. So in Turkey, around this, this would have been more like 15th century. Uh, in Turkey, um, we have, uh, I believe they're called Chopin's. Um, they are certainly less functional than than um, even modern high heels. And they are definitely more of a wealth and fashion statement. Uh, most Chopin's measure around 8 to 10 inches in height. Um, could you imagine wearing 10-inch heels anywhere? Um, that's ludicrous. Uh, I know that... I know if you go on like TikTok or or Instagram or whatever, there are like there are like um, uh, tall woman influencers, tall model influencers that do like they they have like these like almost like foot tall high heels or whatever to make themselves giants. Um, so they would have fit right in uh, in Turkey at this point in time with their massive high heels. But however, even today's sort of um, even today's high heel Instagram models would have been put to shame by some of the Chopin's from Turkey around this point in time, they were, there were some that measured 18, 20, 22, up to 26 inches in height, um, over two foot heels. Could you imagine the ludicrousness of watching some Turkish royal noble, um, landowner or general or something walk around in 26 inch heels? That would be absolutely outrageous. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it, it, it really does at this point in time in, uh, in central and Eastern Europe really take off as this bizarre fashion statement. Um, and if you go look up, if you go look up some of these heels and some of these Chopin's, 
they are they look ridiculous i mean they're they're borderline i mean they really are like stilts essentially with huge platforms at the bottom um one of our early um high heel pioneers was catherine de medici the queen of france um she was and she really did wear them for the reasons that a lot of women like to wear heels is just to get a height boost because she was not very tall um and there's even you know if you look up some historical references it's even thought that um her husband picked her i think her husband is henry i want to say king henry henry the fourth of france but i i oof, i could be screwing the pooch on that one but it's even thought that um because she wore a taller heel than i can't remember if it was her sister or her cousin whatever henry noticed her and ended up marrying her um, and so she became queen of France because of her high heels is kind of like a, a legendary thing. You know, who the hell actually knows that would have been like in the, uh, in the 15, early 1500s. So, you know, who actually knows for sure. But, uh, Catherine Medici was, um, Catherine D. Medici was definitely our first sort of fashion pioneer in terms of wearing heels that were kind of, I mean, really close to, you know, really close to, uh, normal modern size high heels between like four and six inches, um, and she wore them quite a bit and they, they were really like a, they were really that for that reason, just to give her a little bit of a hype boost. I would, again, I, I would love to see some of these like Turkish nobles bobbling around in their 20 inch heels, like in like their huge, like ceremonial, ceremonial and like expensive, uh, outfits with like just these giant heels. I think that would be hysterical, but this is also from, you've probably heard the term well-heeled. Um, you know, in terms of someone's um, upbringing and wealth and background, education, they're a well-heeled person. This is where this that term comes from. So if they're well-heeled, they had nice, tall, high heels, that definitely means they're a rich, smart person. And it comes from this time period of footwear when we just decided that, you know what, two-foot heels are going to be the thing. And that is sort of your, um, I guess, your early, early history of footwear in general, um, a very obviously didn't go into as much detail as I could have for some of those things, but that that gives you a, a really good idea of how footwear developed over about a fifty thousand year period, um, and and really it doesn't pick up until you know think about it, like you had your your boots and shoes and stuff you know obviously everything still gets better you know from the the quality and the technology and everything still gets better from the fifteenth sixteenth century onward, but it's not until really we get to the eighteen hundreds. That then we begin taking massive leaps forward in terms of how footwear is made and its applications and how it um, and for our purposes in this episode, how um, some certain certain advancements and certain um, certain sort of social conditions create um, create the sort of the perfect storm for uh, sneakers. Um, something else I didn't I, I totally forgot I totally forgot to go through here, but uh, the, during the it's before we get into the the 1800s before we advance to the 1800s here and get into the the early history of sneakers just to go back to the the history of the brief history of shoes totally forgot to mention this that it's in the 1520s where we have our first believe it or not we have our first actual um our first actual sort of specialized athletic footwear um the first soccer cleats they were in King, uh, hold on, let me pull this up to be absolutely sure here. They're in King Henry VIII's uh, wardrobe, and they were made by the king's personal uh, shoemaker. What's a shoemaker called? A cooper? A hooper? What is a shoemaker called? Is it just shoemaker? 
Is that why people literally have the last name Shoemaker? Um, cobbler. That's what a shoemaker is called. So it was the king's personal cobbler, Cornelius Johnson. Uh, and they were essentially just like heavy wood and leather metal, wooden leather sh- boots with sort of with metal spikes, sort of, um, I don't know, not really like, I don't, not nailed through the bottom of them, but essentially probably just nailed through the bottom of them. Um, but they would have been certainly not, certainly not the, the, the light and flexible um, cleats that we think of today, even the lighter and flexible cleats that would have come into existence uh, you know, 350, 360 years later. Um, but literally, um, you know, soccer is, soccer is one of our oldest sports. Um, I should say soccer is one of our oldest modern sports in terms of sports that have continued on, um, you know, more or less unchanged in their original forms. Soccer is one of the oldest. And it's very, very, it's not surprising that, um, it's not surprising that even in the earliest days of soccer, uh, we would have been looking for some kind of advantage uh, on the pitch, you know. And in this case, a, a obviously the spikes to help you dig into the grass better, um, but also just the design of the just the design of the shoe, like a high, a higher a higher heel or a higher sided um, leather boot to sort of give you uh, that that ankle support. So pretty interesting that even in the the 1500s, we were already kind of advancing athletic footwear, even though we were very far away from what would constitute a sneaker and very far away from what would constitute a cleat. Um, you know, we, we still were kind of experimenting with, uh, exactly how to gain an advantage in sports. So pretty interesting. That's, uh, those were King Henry VIII's cleats, soccer cleats. Uh, and this is around 1525. All right. So let's get into it now. What, uh, truly is the early history of sneakers. And that means we have to start in 18, approximately between 1839 and 1844, why are we starting in 1839 to slash 1844? That's because at this point in time, an American chemist by the name of Charles Goodyear was experimenting with how to make a more durable rubber. Um, at this point in time, I believe he was in um, in the Connecticut in Connecticut in in New England, um, developing his what would be what he would get patented in 1944, but started working on in about 1839. He would get the patent, obviously, five years later for his vulcanized rubber process, um, the process which made rubber stronger, more durable. Um, it, it's it just it, it really is one of our first, um, you know, we're already we're already through the first industrial revolution at this point in time. And you could call vulcanized rubber one of the key sort of inventions and events um, that sort of is kind of signals the dawn of like the second, um, the second industrial revolution. Um, so it's 1839 to 1844, Charles Goodyear, um, Charles Goodyear creates the vulcanized rubber process to make a very durable, flexible rubber material. Um, it really, truly cannot be understated how important of an invention vulcanized rubber is. Um, you're talking about a material that is, pretty is pretty impervious to extreme temperatures um it's which makes it suitable to all sorts of applications um you know obviously the transportation industry is it it, the transportation industry are are cars essentially might never really fully come into existence the way that we think about them without vulcanized rubber we uh, are even even old cars um 
you know, from the night from the early 1900s, um, you know, would have chewed through, you know, chewed through tires and things would have chewed through tires and things like that if they weren't made out of vulcanized rubber. Certainly the weight and the energy output of modern cars would absolutely shred tires that were not made out of vulcanized rubber. So obviously that's like that's the first thing you're, th- you're going to think of, obviously, um, you know, the the transportation advancements. Um, but also, you know, think about like you think about like industrial applications, right? Like the, um, th- you know, this vulcanized rubber can withstand extreme pressure, extreme temperature. So valves and hoses and things that were that were in factories that were part of manufacturing goods and part of construction and, and part of other, um, you know, factory processes now were much more durable. Um, the the belts on the belts on machinery were much more durable. Um, things were sealed watertight um, in in uh, you know on the factory floor and equipment, um, which made the machines more efficient, more reliable. Um, they could output more and more stuff. Um, so you know that's like that's your next big thing, right? Um, obviously, um, it's great for the 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 excuse me the I don't want to jump too far ahead here the um, the implications in medical and healthcare applications, right? Um, things that are sterile and um, you know and, and sealed from disease, uh, be it gloves, um, other medical devices that um, you know that need like a hygienic surface. Uh, it, it really vulcanized rubber really helped prevent the spread of diseases. It really helped improve patient care. Um, it, and then you know since we had mentioned the Cairo toe, thinking about prosthetics, um, you know the development of, of modern prosthetics. And how, you know, you, you wouldn't be walking around on a wooden peg leg anymore. You'd have something that was more flexible and durable. Um, so in terms of metal, in terms of medical and healthcare, the applications for vulcanized rubber were in, enormous. Uh, waterproofing, insulation in our homes, um, uh, the insulation for electrical equipment to make um, to make electrical equipment more durable and more reliable, um, which really would have been would have been a boon to. Uh, to obviously to um, you know to factories and things like that, but think about the development of consumer um, early consumer electronics and early electrical systems that would have been going up in cities around um, you know in the United States. Uh, it, it's I, I'm getting I'm, I know I'm getting kind of lost in my own thoughts here, but like the applications and the way that vulcanized rubber improved modern life are just they really can't be undersold and. This is where we come back to where I'm coming back to now. I didn't want to get too far ahead, but now we can get back to it. One of the huge things that vulcanized rubber really affects are consumer goods. um, And in particular, um, obviously toys and things like that, household items. um, But really, really comes to bear here in footwear and athletic equipment, sporting equipment, right? Um, We now have the means to make we now have the means to make a, a shoe that can be worn for sports um, that is lighter and also more lighter, more flexible than wearing like essentially what amounts to work boots um, out on the, out of the pitch to play soccer or out on the field to play baseball. Um, or, you know, I guess we had, weren't quite at basketball at this point in time, although we're getting there, we're getting pretty close. Um, but so the footwear that would have been worn in early sports, tennis, um, you know, the footwear suddenly is more flexible, reliable. Um, it grips better, uh, grips the surfaces better that you're playing on. Um, also, the just as important, 
the um, the various uh, balls that you had been using uh, in sports. The early early soccer balls, early tennis balls, they were more resilient. They bounced more consistently. Um, obviously, a, 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 just as an example here, I'm not, a baseball isn't obviously isn't made out of rubber, but like early baseballs before they began being made by machine and before like the the processes were more refined to make baseballs, they were essentially just sort of like um, like bean bags. <laughs> um, so, and this went for like a lot of sporting equipment. Um, you know, rugby balls, um, early footballs, uh, early soccer balls were very much not that they were like bean bags, but they were they were very much at the whim of you know the if someone didn't sew them perfectly, then you know it had a funny bounce or a funny roll to it. That's just how it went. And it, once we once we began you know once vulcanized rubber is introduced to sporting equipment. It uh, the consistency of those of the of the objects being used, in you know be it a, be it a tennis ball, be it a soccer ball, uh, a rugby ball, whatever. The consistency, the durability of them just increased exponentially, making them, um, you know, making the the sport now much more much more accessible for regular people. Also, also drove down the price too. Um, accessible for regular people and consistently. More usable, a more usable product for um, you know for the sports in general, which brings me to the next major thing that um, really helped usher in the era of the sneaker, and that is the growing popularity of sports in the 19th century. All right, so let's get into this part: the rise of sports in the 19th century. Uh, there's several factors behind this one, obviously, uh, but in the 19th century, sports as both um, organized sports and like team sports in terms of leagues, obviously it starts to develop here, but also, um, participation, you know, uh, I guess consu- the consumer participation, if that makes sense of organized sports also really begins to take off in the 19th century. And that's for many, many reasons. So <clears throat> the, the first reason actually kind of, uh, piggybacks onto, you know, the, not specifically vulcanization, r- vulcanized rubber, but it is part of the you can think of that as being um <clears throat> one of the many advancements of the 19th century in terms of uh industrial advancements and this sort of industrialization and industrial advancements of the second industrial revolution lead to um you know they lead to the growth of cities it leads to the rise of like this urban middle class um and you know more people moving into cities more people looking for things to do besides work because at the same time that um, you know society is becoming more efficient in terms of its manufacturing prowess, it also that also has sort of a, a an unintended but positive consequence for people who either work or own um, the means of manufacturing. Um, at this point in time, they have more free time. The 19th century saw one of the biggest reduction of working hours for a lot of people. Um, obviously in the industrialized countries and the countries going through the second industrial revolution. Um, you have more free time. You have more time to engage in recreational activities. So this is where we see a big jump in stuff like um, in Germany, we see a big jump in gymnasiums. Um, exercise really all over the world starts to jump up at this point in time. Um, we see more sporting clubs. Um, this is where uh, when you see teams, you know, especially think about like these old uh, football teams in England, um, you know, their their dates, you know, they've been around for you know almost 200 years. They all kind of trace back to this point in time 
when uh, in the mid 1800s, when um, mid to early 1800s, when um, more and more people had free time to do things like this, they had free time to go play soccer, they had free time to go, um, you know, join, join a shooting club or a riding club or something. And so you had all these clubs develop because people just had more free time to do them. Um, so and and really, this was kind of an about face of what of you know the beginning of modern sport being. Um, you know, more than just more than just something, more than just like a leisure activity. It is it is sort of like, I mean, obviously this is still a leisure activity, but it is. Let's just put it this way: the the focus of sport becomes very different, where it was very much just something else to do. This is something that does take up more and more of our time because we have more time to give to it. Um, another big thing that changes at this point in time uh, is improved transportation. Obviously despite the advancements in vulcanized rubber we're still very far away from uh from modern cars and buses and things like that um we're still quite we're still several decades away from that becoming a reality but um more railways um it was easier to get to you know it was easier to get into the city and out of the city so um so a lot of the so the the i guess the um the spectator version portion of sports um kind of grew because people could could then go more easily travel to go see these uh these developing clubs go play soccer against one one you know each other or go wrestle each other or whatever it was um and obviously you know if if you in this case of like maybe you want you you were someone who was participating yourself in something you know be it uh, soccer or football or just general exercise and you're going to a gymnasium it was much easier to get to now at this point in time so our improved transportation, especially in Europe, but all over the world, um, definitely helped um, helped boost the interest, the national, the national or collective interest in um, in sport. And we also have this idea of this this um, this idea of nationalism. Obviously, it culminates in <laughs> in World War One, but we have the beginning of a more national identity of nationalism, where countries are much more defined at this point in time um you know there's you know i i know i mentioned it in the in the war episodes um germany doesn't even become germany until the 1870s um so really a lot of countries at this point in time were really sort of were really sort of becoming developing a, a, what we think of as a more na- a more modern national identity and one of the ways that you could participate in this national identity yourself is to involve yourself either in the playing of your of a particular sport, you know, your national sport, be it football, soccer, rugby, you know, whatever, or you know, being a spectator and being an, an early fan of the um, of, of your of your sports teams from your country. Um, so you really, it's at this point in time we have like our first sort of um, I don't know, I guess like our early our earliest earliest possible soccer hooligans, right? are developing at this point in time. Um, so, you know, while there were, you know, like just for example, just to kind of shrink this down, um, while there were um, obviously soccer teams uh, in, you know, Ireland and, and England and Scotland, um, we also have people more developing a closer identity that, well, yeah, sure, there's a soccer team in, Eng- in Ireland, but I'm going to follow this soccer team here in, you know, in Liverpool. Um, I'm going to follow this soccer team here in London or whatever. Um, so we do kind of get this idea, um, this sort of nationalism and this national identity kind of being intertwined with the early, earliest beginnings of, 
of our sports leagues. Um, you know, this, this, these two things, these two ideas are certainly overlapping with one another. And because we are, you know, like I said, because we have more and more established clubs, we also have, the, this is also where the beginnings of leagues and organizations and, you know, what have you begin to form because we, you know, let's just say you have 10 club teams in London and they're going to play each other. Well, now we have to like, we have to have the same rules, right? We can't just, if this is different than just, um, you know, getting on the pitch to play on a weekend with uh, you know, some people in the neighborhood. Now, if we're going to go travel to, uh, you know, if we're going to pick the team up and go travel from East London over to, you know, the East end over to the West end or whatever, um, forgive my complete ignorance of, uh, of London geography. Um, but if, you know, if you're going to take essentially a, a team from one side of London to the other, um, there, we're all going to expect that the same rules are going to be played. So at this point in time, we have the formation of rules and, organ- and, and sports organizations to oversee those rules and enforce those rules. So this is where, you know, the, the, you know, the premier league and the, um, you know, the Spanish leagues and, you know, whatever, take, take your pick all these leagues that are, are forming around this point in time simply because there had to be sort of um, someone to standardize the game because we were now, um, you know, we were now traveling around to play other teams. So we wanted to make sure all the teams were playing by the same rules. And by extension, we wanted to make sure that all the people that were going to come watch, um, you know, and were interested in the, in these, uh, you know, early soccer games and other sporting events, the other people, the people that were watching the spectators also had to have an expectation that they're going to see the same game everywhere they went. So we have the formation of leagues, this, you know, and this sort of, again, this sort of drives up a, a general interest. Now that we have something that is so well, that is becoming so well defined, we kind of know what to expect. Um, obviously, there's a, there's a whole social status thing. Um, the middle class, you know, middle class generally being the ones that have the time to participate in sports, um, to, um, you know, to, to really be able to invest, not just participate in sports, but invest time in the formation of these leagues. Um, this really was sort of the this really was a a social class and social status kind of um, kind of development at this point in time. Um, and I really sport had always kind of been this way, um, but this is the first time that it, it kind of trickles down a little bit. Sport had always been something reserved. Not I shouldn't say reserved, but more uh, more um, more of an upper class and wealthy kind of thing. Where, you know, the people, wealthy landowners are the ones who could afford to, you know, ride horses and hunt uh, because, you know, obviously they had the means, but they also had the the free time. And now this is the middle class now has the means and the free time to participate in sport. So it it definitely is a a social class and status kind of thing. And in fact, there, you know, there are some TV shows and and movies and things um, that um, I can't remember the name. There's a there's a show on now. I don't know. I don't remember if it's Netflix or if it's Amazon. About the earliest, earliest, earliest days of um, of uh, football in in England, and it would have been like the 1840s or 50s, maybe even maybe even 1830s, and how the the well established teams were were generally uh, middle class, upper middle class people, you know, people who owned you know who owned plants and warehouses. And transportation companies and, and you know ship goods and stuff like that. Those are the people whose who they were participating or their families were participating in sports. And the teams that they had were much better organized. Um, you know the equipment they had, albeit early equipment was better. But like there was a very clear sort of you know when they went when they go to play 
um, when they go to play uh, teams that are constituted more of like the poorer working class, there's definitely sort of a, you know, looking down their nose at them kind of attitude about it. So this is definitely, um, you know, just, it, it, again, sport and really you could even, you could even say that even today, for the most part, uh, sport is something that's, that is more easily enjoyed by the upper and middle classes than it is the lower classes. But certainly at this point in time, it becomes a little bit more exaggerated. And then also we have the development of the more widespread development of print media, newspapers and things, right? So we, along with the growth of, of, of leagues and organizations, they weren't leagues that obviously, I think the better way to think of them is our, our club organizations. But as these grow and the interest of them and the interest of the, in them grows, um, you also have print media growing along with it because someone had to write about it. Um, we have our first, essentially our first sports columns develop at this point in time as well. And this was, um, you know, people wanted to know about like what, what did our team in London do? Or, you know, if you, you can take it over to the Americas, you know, what did, what did our, um, you know, what did our football club over in, uh, in, you know, in New York do versus that football club in Boston? You know, there, this really did become, you know, our, our first, our, our first sort of, um, our, I should say what maybe the most important development in terms of, um, in terms of sports coverage, you know, happens really at this, I mean, really at the same time as print media, newspapers and things were themselves growing. So it's, uh, so sport and sport news and, and the newspaper and, and print media had always, have always been very, very intertwined. And, um, it really helps fuel the growth and the interest in sport at this time. So look at all this. I know that was kind of rambly and I apologize for kind of getting too far into that, but it, I find it very interesting. But look at all this that, that comes together at the same time. We have, we have a we have a process by which um, you know we have people with more time on their hands and more interest in sports and more interest in participating in sports and now we have the now we have the means to develop um, better equipment for those sports and now we are going to get into really the most probably the most important if you're asking me the most important piece of equipment besides the object that you're playing with be it a baseball a hockey puck or a football or a soccer ball or whatever. Um, the most important and critical piece of equipment then now is the sort of the net, the is really the the last thing to sort of be standardized and then sort of innovated on right like we can do the we can do the ball first uh, but now we really need to work on the footwear because it just you know at this point in time you had a lot of people especially the um, especially the, the the lesser funded clubs and people just out there trying to you know play sports on their own. Um, you know, or, or exercise in their own, whatever it is. Part, I'll just call it participate in sport you know, in a very general sense. Um, they just didn't have the footwear for it to to really sort of, um, to really make it enjoyable. It, like, I mean, really and truly the, the best way to think about it is imagine going to, imagine going out to the pitch to play some soccer and you are wearing, you are wearing your leather business shoes. Um, you know, men, men out there wearing your leather loafers to go play soccer. I mean, that really what that's really what a lot of people would have been kind of going with at that point in time. Um, obviously, they had, you know, shoes were a little bit different back then, but that's sort of the same level of what we're talking about here. They're just they're not specialized for the sport um, and they certainly aren't specialized to handle even more generally. They aren't specialized. That sounds really more generally specialized. 
um, in, in, more, in a more general sense, they aren't really made to handle athletic movement. So as people begin to participate more and more in these sports, we are finding very rapidly, and obviously, like I said, I mentioned before that uh, the King's, King Henry VIII's cobbler, um, Cornelius Johnson, had made um, an early early prototype cleat um, in the 15th, in the 1500s. Um, but as we, you know, but like, again, that would have been a, a once in a, a, you know, only the, only the royalty would have been participated in soccer at that point in time. And it's not like you were expect. it's not like these people were, um, you know, bending passes, uh, across the pitch, like Beckham to one another or, or unleashing, uh, Ronaldo shots on goal at this point in time. So like sport really hasn't, it really it's very, it's recognizable, but it's also not recognizable to like what's happening, um, even obviously today, but even in the 1800s, right? So, as people get more, as as people get more um, into the sport and get better at the sport, they needed footwear that also um, was specialized for what they were doing. So we have all of this, and now we just need the shoes for it. So it is. Like I said, we get the we get the vulcanization of rubber in the eighteen late eighteen thirties, early eighteen forties, and it's at this point in time that we really begin to um, almost at this almost at the exact same time we begin to sort of tinker with the idea of like man we need we need something we need something that is going to grip the ground better. It's going to be flexible, but you know whatever. So very very early on. In the, um, or I should say, soon after the process of vulcanized, and there there were excuse me, let me rewind real quick. There were previous attempts to make um, various athletic shoes that uh, would have served, um, especially soccer at this point in time, um, but other sports as well. I mean, tennis was being played. Um, again, rugby was being played. Um, there were attempts to make shoes, but it's not until we get to the vulcanized rubber that we have shoes that have a durable sole but are also flexible and light. Um, <clears throat> So it's it's really right after the right after the the vulcanization of rubber that we g- begin seeing the absolute earliest version of athletic shoes. Sorry, I kind of talked around the same point there for a little bit. I apologize, but it's so I'll just get into some of the bigger developments. So in the 1860s, um, from the Liverpool Rubber Company, uh, later known as later known as you'll know this name Dunlop, um, produced a rubber soled shoe called the Plimsoll. So this plimsoll shoe in the 1860s, um, it very, very, it's a very, very simple shoe. I'm kind of looking at a picture of like an example of what a plimsoll shoe would have looked like, and really they look very much like modern. Uh, they look very much like modern slip-ons that you might see um, someone in the service industry wearing, maybe like a nurse or someone like that, possibly wearing. Um, very similar to that type of shoe. Honestly, as someone who um, is someone who power lifts, these really look like. Um, these really look like the bare bones powerlifting shoes that a lot of that a lot of people train in as well. Um, and these plimsoll shoes made by Dunlop in the 1860s would have been our first real mass-produced um, shoe, um, but they weren't actually originally marketed as an athletic shoe. They just became popular because it, as one of those things that just happens, you know, with with certain products, people found that this was unintentionally a really good version of um a really good this even though it wasn't even though it wasn't a specialty athletics shoe it still served the needs pretty well because it was light flexible and had that good rubber grip at the bottom um let's move ahead about 30 years or so 
1892, the U.S. Rubber Company introduced the first rubber-soled shoes designed exactly for athletic use. And 10 points to anyone who knows what these shoes were. You've probably heard of them before. Going once, going twice. That's right, the U.S. Rubber Company makes Keds. Um, and I guess you don't really know, I guess I don't have to really explain what Keds look like to you, but I guess I'll, let me do that real quick. Let me Google like an 1892 Ked. Um, so go ahead and bring this up for you here. Um, so Keds in the 18, or at least early Keds. Um, okay, let me bring this up here. I got an advertisement for the 1930s, but really the way that you're um, from 1937, really the way that you're thinking of um, a shoe that we're going to talk about later, um, the the Chuck Taylor, very, very similar to that. Um, it looks like the first, one of the first Keds women's sneakers really kind of looks like almost a cross between, um, a cross between like a Chuck Taylor and a cowboy boot. If, um, if that makes any sense, um, let me know. But if, um, if you, if you go Google, um, if you Google uh, 1890s Keds or just like early Keds or whatever, you'll see exactly what I mean. Like you can see that there's definitely the beginnings. You got the high ankle support. Um, you got the rubber sole, but there's sort of like a heel on the back edge of it um, that probably not like a high heel, but probably would be a little bit too tall um, for practical sporting purposes now, obviously. But I, I would kind of look at these as almost a cross between um, cross between a, a Chuck Taylor and a cowboy boot. Be an interesting way to look at it. Um, so that's in 1892, Keds get introduced. I think something else that's important to note <clears throat> at this point in time is that the the first sport that really had dedicated, uh, sho- you know, shoes tailored specifically and dedicated specifically to the sport um, was tennis. And uh, again, this is like in the, the mid 19th century, mid to late 19th century, is when we have um, t- when we have tennis players actually. Um, wearing very specific shoes for for their needs for their you know we need to have you need to have the grip on like the clay surfaces you need to have grip on grass um, you need to have grip on other hard surface I don't know if they I don't know if I'm assuming they played on um, a hard surface probably not the composite hard surface that we have now for um, for tennis but um, it, you know so this was the first sport to have its own very specific dedicated athletic shoe. Which is part of the reason, um, uh, this isn't a fact or anything, but it just makes sense. Part of the reason why we have always a very common parlance for um, for everyone is to just call any athletic shoe a tennis shoe. Because tennis was, in fact, the very first sport that really had um, had, its, had the players, obviously it's not a team, but had the players who participated in the sport, um, you know, they were the ones who really went out and... Um, and had had specialized shoes made for them. So part of the reason why we do kind of just kind of casually call sneakers tennis shoes. So now this brings us to really where the the modern shoe revolution truly begins. Uh, we're now into the early 20th century and um, and and we are going to we are going to talk very specifically about basketball and tennis. And we can't talk about shoes without talking about Chuck Taylor. Chuck Chuck Taylor, the, the the man whose name has been on shoes now for the better part of a hundred years. Um, maybe maybe the most iconic shoes ever, or at least I, I think you could if they're not the most iconic shoes ever, they're the second most iconic shoes of all time. Uh, Chuck Taylor All Stars. 
um, named for Chuck Taylor, uh, Charles Hollis Taylor, um, a, <clears throat> a basketball player, but really more of a salesman uh, from uh, from Indiana. And really where his um, really where his sort of con- contribution to um, to the shoot, you know, the sneaker industry and, and basketball comes in. It's obviously not as a player because there was no, you know, we're, we're years and years away from the NBA at this point in time. He's um, it's, you know, the early, oh gosh, I want to say that we're talking about like 1917, 1918, somewhere around this point in time. So we're, we are still very, very early. Um, uh, I should say 1919 actually is when he's like a semi-pro basketball player. Um, so we are very far away from, basketball really being anything more than sort of a very re very very regional um sport in the united states and you know we're uh what i guess like 30 years away about 30 years away from the earliest nba teams in the east coast um and in, in pennsylvania being recognized as you know and well and obviously there's a couple other teams in the midwest being recognized as part of the nba um so we're years away from that yet decades away from that yet um, so it's Chuck Taylor doesn't, doesn't have like a necessarily a, a huge basketball career. You're right. He's, he's not like, it's not like his name isn't on for the same reason, for the same reasons as Michael Jordan having his own shoe line where, where Chuck Taylor comes in is that Chuck Taylor was very much a, um, he was a salesman is really where he, he kind of, um, makes his name. Um, he's a salesman for Converse and, Really what he does, he's, um, really what he does is that he is a very hands-on salesman and that he is working with the athletes that he is selling his shoes to. He's organizing camps and, and, um, workshops and stuff to talk about the shoes, to show off why, you know, Converse obviously are the best, are the best basketball shoes you could be wearing. Um, but more importantly, he was getting feedback, uh, from every single one of the players at these camps to figure out like what, what were the pros and cons of a particular shoe model that Converse was using what were the pros and pros and cons of other shoes at this point in time? Um, you know, what were they, what were some things that they could look at to, to take a, to take a piece, you know, take a piece of their innovation or whatever. So, you know, so while he was playing basketball, traveling and selling the shoes, he was on the fly innovating and kind of coming up with, you know, taking that feedback and innovating, helping the converse innovate like the what would be like the, the next step in their in their shoe technology. So it's obvious it's not it's not Chuck Taylor's basketball prowess that got him um uh you know that earned his signature on on the converse and got us you know and now we iconically refer to um you know those those types of basketball shoes that are still made today um as Chucks. It's his his innovation and his um his contributions to spreading, to spreading the idea of a very, of especially basketball shoe, you know, obviously specifically for Converse's sake, making Converse the you know the first true um, branded basketball shoe. Um, that's why his name is on that patch. Um, Chuck Taylor is definitely an, an early innovator in the shoe game, and interesting that really like our first. It, it's kind of funny like. You know, jokingly, like a lot of players have shoes um, today across all sports. A lot of players have their own cleats in football and soccer, obviously. And it's more it's more synonymous with basketball, obviously, 
which I think, again, this goes all the way back to Chuck Taylor's efforts back at this point in time, because there are other leagues that were much more established, um, more so than the NBA, and certainly more popular than the NBA, even through the early decades of the NBA. But we, you know, sneaker culture, shoe culture is just synonymous with basketball because of Chuck Taylor's efforts. But, um, you know, we kind of joke that like everyone has their own shoe and that's kind of like a, um, I don't know, a a derogatory sort of like, you know, someone's ambitions kind of having their own shoe is like a little bit of a dig, I guess, Um, can be seen as a little bit of a dig. Like, oh, what, what, you want your own shoe someday? I just think it's kind of funny that literally the first shoe was someone's shoe, right? Like, I mean, they were they were Converse All-Stars, but like almost immediately they were Chuck Taylor. You know, they were Converse All-Stars, Chuck Taylors. They were Chucks. Um, it's just it's just kind of funny that the the development of shoes was almost, especially athletic shoes and sneakers, was almost immediately identified with an individual. And in fact, it, it actually, Chuck Taylor was not the first. I had mentioned that, um, I had mentioned that tennis shoes were, um, you know, tennis was the first sport to have specifically specialized shoes and back in the back in the 19 19 teens 1920s i want to say it was the early 1920s um french tennis player suzanne langan was actually the first um was actually the first sort of i i guess it's hard to say she had a shoe named after her because it wouldn't be exactly accurate but um a company was making shoes with her in mind and you could buy the the very you could buy a shoe the same shoe that uh, Suzanne Langland wore um, uh, on the courts at Wimbledon and uh, you know and, and wherever else she played. Um, so it's not it's again it's not like it's not like the it's not like the model shoe in, in the way that we're thinking about like Michael Jordan or LeBron or something like that. But it is sort of these were like her sort of shoes that like became synonymous with with tennis at this point in time and um the this i guess it's more of the style would have been called would have been considered the langland shoe and in fact you can still buy um the langland shoe is made by lacoste uh today uh certainly it wasn't i'm gonna go ahead and make the assumption that it wasn't made by lacoste at that point in time but the again the the development of the sneaker and the development of the athletic shoe is synonymous goes hand in hand it always has gone hand in hand with the athletes that wear them i just think it's just kind of an interesting thing um, when you go back and look at the history of it how closely tied sneakers are to the people that were wearing them or in one case the people that were selling them all right that's where i'm going to leave this first part of the episode um simply because it, it's, it's a few more decades before we get to um a more recognizable model of you know, more recognizable model, both of like what an athletic shoe is, but also like the business around it and the culture around it really doesn't develop again for another couple of decades. Um, certainly, certainly we, as soon as, as soon as, um, Chuck Taylor, had his name slapped on those shoes, um, modern sneaker culture did begin, right? I mean, it, it was his whole goal and mission for Converse was to sell the superior sneaker. And besides the athletic performance, he was going to sell them on other points on style points, um, and things like that. And obviously, um, these shoes become so popular, not just because they're great basketball shoes, but because they are a great fashion statement. I mean, quite frankly, they're still a great fashion statement. I own a couple pairs of Chucks that I really, really enjoy um, the look of. Um, I actually have a pair of Chucks that I just lift in. 
um, is one of my pair of, of powerlifting shoes is a pair of Chucks. So <clears throat> it's not just it's not just function. I think this is a you know I think this is also an important kind of thing to to hit on here before we do fully wrap it up here that it is obviously function, but I think we are with the sort of the celebrity sponsorships, you know, with, um, with Chuck Taylor, I guess it's, again, it's hard to call it a sponsorship, but, um, but like the celebrity sponsorships with the, or I, let's call it the, the, the proto sponsorships, the earliest form of celebrity sponsorships, um, athlete sponsorships with shoes. So the Chuck Taylors, uh, the Suzanne Langlands, um, like Suzanne Langland of her time was, you know, was Serena Williams, Martina Navratilova. Like she was that, she was that dominant. So it just makes sense that, um, she's the person that gets, um, you know, get, that gets the women's shoe, um, you know, essentially not really, again, not really named after her. It's hard to call it associated with her is probably the better way to put it. Um, but it, it takes a while longer before we get to something more recognizable. Um, so, you know, again, we have, we have more wide acceptance of Converse as like the chosen, um, basketball shoe, you know, go ahead and look at pictures of, some you know some NBA and basketball legends from like the 40s and 50s and 60s more than likely they're they are wearing Converse shoes, um, or you know a few a few other models that make their way in. I think Puma makes their way in in the 1950s or 60s. But generally speaking, uh, most every college basketball player, high school basketball player, um, certainly at that point in time, early pro basketball player, they're all wearing Converse for the most part. Um, so it's really not until we get to like the late sixties and the seventies where things really change. So I kind of want to, I just want to leave this episode here. Um, this first part here, you know, finishing off with Chuck Taylor and Suzanne Langland, um, because I think that really is sort of the, um, I want to say the end of the, the first era of sneakers exactly, but it's, it's definitely, um, it's definitely like a, a low water point in terms of like, um, in terms of like the increasing innovation and the the spread, it takes we're a couple of decades away from the next sort of the next sort of jump in interest in um, sports as a hobby, um, in the widespread and and how far certain sports spread, and then obviously how um, the athlete endorsement then creates uh, spreads spreads shoe wear you know spreads sneaker wearing, but also really creates the um the modern sneakerhead culture so i think as opposed to continuing on in this episode it just makes more sense to sort of cut it here um call this part one our our early early history going back almost fifty thousand years to the end of like the first period of um of the development of the, of the athletic sneaker and the first people that would would have been um spokespeople sponsored people um, you know, sponsored athletes that were that were wearing particular shoes um, before we get into the modern era and where that culture really explodes. So that's it for this episode. We will see you next week. Um, we get into, like I said, we get into the the next sort of exp- the next sort of major expansion in sneakers and the modernization of sneakerhead culture. We'll see you then.